0: This is the Hunt Quietly Podcast. I'm Matt Rinella.
1: On today's podcast, Matt and I are joined by longtime outdoor writer and hunting TV personality, Ron Spomer. In case you're wondering, my name is Jim Durkin and I've been a guest on this podcast a few times. And as you'll find out in this episode, I'll be contributing my own episodes with topics related to hunter access, conservation, and hunting advocacy. While I'm going to be broadening the topics discussed on Hunt Quietly, it was a real pleasure to play producer on this one and sit in while Matt and Ron discuss a myriad of topics. I really expected the discussion to be focused on hunting TV since Ron has a long history of shows and whatnot. However, a lot of the focus was on hunting advocacy and wildlife conservation. Anyway, I hope you enjoy our talk with Ron Spomer. Got Ron Spomer and Jim Durkin
0: on with me tonight. Is it Spomer? I right about that?
2: Spomer rhymes with Homer and Gomer. Uh, Close, though. Uh, <laughs> I've been called worse. <laughs> Jim,
0: you're, Jim, this is your fourth appearance on the Hunt Quietly
1: podcast? My fourth appearance so far, yeah.
0: And Jim is soon to be co-host wow. of the podcast. And hopefully you can get the numbers up, man, because we're languishing. Mm. I'm trying to save hunting here. And all I'm getting is three to 400 listeners a week. They ain't going to cut it. I need a we need a groundswell of listeners. Yeah, so I'm counting on Jim to produce some dynamic content that stimulates the masses to get on board and do what's right.
1: Well, if if we keep getting of
0: our cherished
1: pastime, if if we keep getting hosts or guests like Ron, numbers will will go up.
0: Okay, okay, and I'm gonna yeah, I'm gonna lay out your I'm gonna lay out your history briefly here on, as soon as I get done admonishing Jim, Jim, you're kind of like the host of this episode and yet you lack a microphone and a headset.
1: I do have the microphone. Oh,
0: okay. You're easing into
1: it. Yeah, I'm easing into it. I I have the microphone. I have it a little bit away from me because I have a tendency to talk loud.
0: And I, you know, I can actually kind of respect that. It's like, you're not there yet. You're not a host yet. You haven't earned, you haven't <laughs> earned headset. the headset yet. <laughs> <laughs> so Ron, you got to forgive me for, for not knowing about your existence, but until Jim told me about you, but I've, I've never really followed hunting media in any of its forms. Mm-hmm. So, uh, don't take that as an indication that your work hasn't had impact or been widely followed, but Jim sent me some notes on your history. I'm just going to read them off here. You're, you've been a freelance writer and a photographer since 1970, 1976. Mm-hmm. You're an author of multiple books and editor for multiple magazines you were the host of a TV show called Winchester Legends TV on Versus from 2006 to 2008. What's Versus?
2: Oh, it used to be one of those outdoor network type shows or uh, stations. Okay. Uh, like, not like the outdoor network. And I don't know. I can't even remember all. There were four or five of them, but that was one that was thriving back in those days. Yeah. A lot of shows on there. You
0: were host of Winchester World of Whitetail from 2010 to 2018. Was that
2: also on Versus? No, by then it had been bought out by someone else and the name changed. Um, it bounced around. Honestly, I didn't pay all that much attention to what the stations were. I was just hired to be the host, do a hunt and do what I do, and then the editors would put it together, and I that was the only control I had on it, whatever I was doing in the field.
0: My my understanding from another recent episode where I was chatting with a guy that manages country music musicians and he, but some of these musicians also have hunting TV shows. Mm. And he was telling me about SHOT Show and he was saying that with most of those shows, it's you buy the airtime. Exactly, You, the person that's making the show buys the airtime and then
1: recruits
0: their expenses and hopefully more than recruits them through advertising so this was prior to that model models
2: emergence no that was the model that was uh, being used when i was doing it back in those okay. days yeah okay. the producer i think the producer would sell the idea to several potential sponsors and then when he got a a featured sponsor, the masthead sponsor, whatever you wanted to call them, and then sub-sponsors in different categories below. So they try to bring on a firearm manufacturer, ammunition, optics, camouflage clothing, boots, packs, whatever they could come up with to fund the production because they had to pay that network to get it on the air. And that's why you see so much blatant advertising on a lot of those shows.
0: Yeah, that that makes sense. I think... Am I right in in that a lot of times when it's a it's a new sh- newer show, it's the host themselves
2: that's trying to that is buying at the airtime. Yeah, I think so. I know I know that's the case with some, and I suspect it's a lot of folks that do it that way. And I notice that many times they will have a business that sells a certain product, a broadhead, a rifle sling, or Bipod or something, and it's an advertising mechanism for it. So they're able to write it off as their advertising, and they also reach a pretty big audience, and uh, they get to go hunting and write that off too. I imagine.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. So were were you approached by the producer, a producer? How did that? Let me finish this first. You were the also the co-host of White. Whitetail Revolution, mm-hmm. and that and that was before Winchester World of Whitetails. And then you were guest host on Ruger Adventures, Leopold's Big Game Adventures, Hunting Two Hundred One, and Outdoors Ten Best. So that's a bit on your your bio. Now it's complete. We can carry on. What was the what were you saying about the producer situation and how you ended up doing hunting TV?
2: Yes, I think because I had been around as a writer for Sports of Field, Sporting Classics, Outdoor Life, American Hunter, Gun Hunter, Rifle Magazine, you name it, I wrote. I've been published in well over 114 different publications, including Better Homes and Gardens. I think <laughs> over the years, <laughs> it's like. Do you have a? Do
0: you? Uh, were you? Did you go to college for some kind of f- fine arts degree, or like, were you writing? Sort of,
2: sort of, maybe, kind of. I, I went to a local small college, and it was near enough to my old family farm that I could stay out in Grandpa's old farmhouse, live cheap for nothing. And then run a trap line down to the university, take my classes, and run another trap line back and pay. What university? The University of South Dakota at Springfield, which was the original teachers' college in the state, and then of course they modified it and pulled it into the university system and all that stuff. So that's pretty uh, nifty that you checked your traps on the way to classes. It was a great place to go to school because it was not all that far from home. So. Um, I was able to do that, didn't have to live in a big city, it's just a small town, and it was right on the Missouri River, so Lewis and Clark's Smoky Trail was still going by, and they had turkeys and whitetail and waterfowl and pheasants and quail and prairie chickens and sharp tails. I mean, it was just a paradise for a young man who loved to hunt. And what if, what, I'm imagining what you meant by that is that Lewis
0: and Clark's, on their trip out west, they, they, they went through there. But why do you yeah. call it a smoking trail?
2: Well, it be smoking hot, you know? It's been so. No, wasn't all that it was long, so long ago that they went down there. Warm. Yeah. <laughs> for someone like me, I could feel the heat for their passing. <laughs> I, mean, I often stood on the bluff waiting for their canoes to come by so I could join them.
1: <laughs> nice. <laughs> all
0: right. So we're. We got your background. Next thing I wanted to ask you guys is how you're doing. Oh, I'm doing great. How are you doing, Jim? I'm doing no, good, No, I mean more than that. I mean, more than that. I mean, really, how are you doing? What's new? How are you <laughs> feeling about things? What What are your biggest concerns? And what are the biggest opportunities? How depressed are you? What, going- what, 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 <laughs> what's spinning
2: around in your brain? too many things to mention i mean i if we want to get into politics and i suggest we don't necessarily because there's too many things screwed up right now but if you've well, read you their of all of you can rise i
0: i as a burgeoning podcaster yeah i'm i'm i think that i'm afraid to go into my political beliefs too much because i i don't want to i don't i, I don't want to i think i have a apolitical message mm-hmm. so my 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 message and in, in my beliefs and the, the kind of conversation I'm trying to have transcends politics. I don't mm-hmm. see it as a right thing or a left thing at all. So I don't want to alienate my audience by bringing my politics into it. I'll just Good. suffice it to say, I have my political opinions for sure. Um, I'm concerned. I'll say it goes so far as to say, I'm concerned about some things that are happening on the far right and the far left. Right. So I'm
2: willing to yeah. go that far. I'm I'm ready to stay away from that sort of thing, too, because it just alienates half your audience. And the audience we need are folks who are concerned about the environment, natural uh, wildlife populations, what we have left for wild places and how we are going to sustain those in the long term, because the pressure is on big time. My generation was extremely fortunate to have lived during an optimum time of rebuilding wildlife populations because of the early pioneer conservationists like Pinchot and Roosevelt and the Boone and Crockett Club and all the rest had started this whole program, this North American wildlife management idea that's been so successful at bringing back large numbers of elk, pronghorn, bears, whitetails, turkeys, you know, the the routine, pretty much all the game species that we pumped all that money into, did all that research, the reintroduction programs. And it, it was just, absolutely marvelous for the last half of the 20th century. But about 10 years in on the 21st, I think the chickens started coming home to roost because of all the development that's gone on and the, the continuing losses of wetlands and grasslands. I mean, I can remember being concerned about that back in the 70s, but I thought we were getting a handle on it. But when you look at the numbers, they're plowing up and draining and as as much as ever. You know, we lose millions of acres every year. And it's just crazy that so few hunters seem to have that information anymore. They're all concerned about the latest high-tech tools that they use to enjoy hunting, but they don't seem to get the conservation message, which is, I mean, everything hinges on that. If we don't get back to doing what we were doing in the 20th century, we're going to lose. And we're going to, well, let me put it this way. I saw recently some statistics that, Twice as many rifles are purchased by people for target shooting than for hunting. More are purchased for home protection than for hunting. Something like less than 20% are purchased for hunting. So that tells us something important about where people's interests lie. And I think it's a combination of the urbanization of the country as well as ongoing development and this continuing habitat destruction for agriculture to support all these people who live in the cities. So the kids who grow up in the cities don't have that personal connection with the swamps, and the mud holes, and the and the cornfields where the pheasants were cackling at. I did as a kid. I would leave this little town or the grandpa's farm and pretty much immediately be in the wild, obviously it right. was. Well, wasn't technically wild anymore because it had been prairie and it was all plowed up, but there was enough remnant left that we still had jackrabbits and we had cottontails and the tree squirrels were coming in with the trees and the whitetails came in in the 60s and then eventually the, the turkeys in the 70s and all that good stuff. But now I think we're seeing the trend go the other direction. Turkey populations seem to be declining. Whitetail populations are even taking a hit in some places. In some places, there's too many of them, and that's why they're taking a hit. They've just degraded the habitat so much. By like constantly browsing, that you don't have an understory anymore, and then that impacts the rough grouse and, and the warblers like the swainsons, warblers and the thrushes that nest on the ground in those forests. They don't have a place to nest anymore. I mean, we could go on and on and on with this. But those are the messages that are not being taught or at least not getting through from what I've seen from my readers and viewers on my channels. they Not that many of them that seem all that concerned about it or even aware of it.
0: You know, I had Randy Newberg on recently, and that was one of his frustrations. Is that he he generates all this content? Some of it's how to, with respect to hunting. Some Mm -hmm. of it's traditional, like hunting footage. But he does a lot of conservation work.
1: Mm
0: -hmm. Conservation. He shines a spotlight. Light on the need for conservation and access, and he doesn't get nearly the views on that. On those kind of videos,
1: yeah, he said five percent. It's funny
0: to me, it's funny to me that, and it's disappointing to me that how to content gets so many eyeballs on it. And you alluded to this yourself, Ron. But if you if we have healthy, abundant game populations and we have access to them, I would way rather have that. Way rather have that than a new the newest bugle tube or what the <laughs> hell ever. Yeah.
2: Exactly. In terms of my
0: chances of success, you know. Yeah, and I don't know how. I don't know. I don't know how we get people to take that more seriously. Uh, There's one part of this that I'm a little bit. It makes me feel a little bit. Just gets under my skin a bit, and that's the mantra or the belief that hunters are the only ones that care about these things. I'm not so swayed by that. That's that's something you hear a lot. But there's just too many conservation organiza- organizations that that don't have a hunting bent to them for me to be totally, to not call bullshit on that a little bit. Huh, Al- yeah. Adan, wilderness Society, right. conservation voters, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Hunters so, care about I, it. I, it's not just hunters. I mean, hunters got to be more involved. And if hunters cared about their own future success. They stop worrying about the freaking dot red dot laser scope that can shoot a thousand miles. Start working on the access, start working on the habitat. Uh, but I, but I, but this, but I get, I get hit a lot because I'm, I'm not, I'm, I, I don't, I think this, this non to me, it's nonsense. This bit that we need more hunters. I think what you're saying says we don't need more hunters. Jim and I have been kicking around this article the last couple weeks was it publishing did we decide it was published in ecological applications jim is that where it was
1: yes okay and, and that guy's Something coming
0: on like, yeah and we have this the author of that article coming on they've estimated in the last 30 years we've lost eight percent of habitat for endangered species i don't see whether the figures would be much different for game species we just don't have the we don't have have the habitat to support the wildlife we used to so people are coming at me all the time with we need to get more hunters so we have more conservationists so i don't that part of it i'm a little reluctant to buy into because i i think that really what's motivating people to want more more hunters is more dues and more product sales but i don't that don't let that make you think or anybody think that i'm not concerned about about habitat because I am I share your concern for habitat I also have an abiding concern for access and an abiding concern that this thing that I've devoted my life to is going to become a bunch of pay to play high dollar bullshit that I have no interest in so I'm concerned about access and habitat so anyway that's a little bit on that
1: that's that's why. When Matt and I did the first podcast, we talked about hunting TV. But then we started talking and communicating and and ex- talked about me coming on to help out with some podcasts. And these are the type of conversations that coincide. I mean, in order for this to work, hunters have to start caring. And they have to start caring about habitat in montana if i'm in pennsylvania i still care about habitat and conservation and hunting in idaho it doesn't matter exactly it's got to be a a a blanket um effort no matter where you are geographically because if it if it's if you're only caring about your backyard you're you're missing the big picture
2: yeah i agree it has to be planetary really A lot of times I'll I'll cover Africa and people will say, I don't care. I'm never going to be able to go to Africa. I can't afford it or I'm not interested. So who cares? Oh, come on, man. This is our planet. The only one we've got. We're uh, a creature of nature, the same as an elephant or a lion or anything else that evolved on this planet. We've got blood in our system and, you know, all these genetics that are quite similar. So it is as much Africa is as much every man's as any man's. You don't have to have been born there or have a certain skin tone or anything else to claim that as part of your world, because this is our world. And humans have been moving across this planet uh, as nomads and explorers and whatnot for as long as, well, longer than history, by a lot. So I think we inherit the right and the responsibility to care for all of it. So you're right on that one. We just need to have this overarching understanding of the way nature works and our role in it. That's what's missing to a large degree is that people don't understand that They have this idea that we're somehow special because we're not animals, as if we were dropped out of a spaceship or something. But we fall to the same diseases as everything else. We have to have food and water and shelter the same as every other animal. We have to have habitat. The major difference is that we have the intelligence, the plausible thumbs and the ability to make the tools that enable us to modify the environment to favor us over them. And there is the danger because it's never us against them. Well, it is when a grizzly bear charges you, but But overall, (laughs) you understand the situation is that we are going to create an artificial planet and go check out some of your sci-fi movies. I don't know about you guys, but I don't want to be living under those conditions, you know, where it's just all urban. There's no nature left. I'm going to it's been covered a thousand times by writers who are a lot more eloquent than I ever will be about how you you need nature read Henry David Thoreau, read uh, Aldo Leopold man yeah. has to have this connection to nature well you, know, have you guys heard of this this he's a philosopher and
0: he, he that has pretty strong opinions about about the energy situation and he his name's Alex
2: Epstein. Does he have an island and a plane?
0: No, no, <laughs> yes. not Jeffrey. Not Jeffrey. <laughs> not all his all brother. Jeffrey. No relation. About, <laughs> okay, as a, good. As a secularist, I'm not I, I don't <laughs> think that Jeffrey's concerned about too much at all anymore. <laughs> or if I'm wrong, he's deeply concerned. <laughs> it is, so, so this guy, his he doesn't buy the climate change thing at all and his thinks he thinks that we need to be burning more fossil fuels and that fossil fuels are the reason why we're able to moderate our climate climate and persist and carry on at least in our homes you know he's got all these ideas that run across the go across the grain and I was listening to him on he's he's interviewed on on Mike Rose podcast which is the way I heard it and I was listening to that the other day and he lays out this case that that there in his mind that you know carbon con- carbon dioxide concentrations used to be 10 times higher than at one point in the history of the world we're 10 times higher than they are now we can we can we're okay with this it's just it might be changing things but it's not making any, making things worse. And his one caveat, his one, the one thing he said that we'd have to get over to adopt his mindset is we have to get used to a more species-impoverished planet. Absolutely. And he was okay with that. Mm -hmm. He, He... He, he thought that was an acceptable trade, and I don't want to live in a world like that.
1: Yeah, I don't. I don't want.
0: I don't want to. I don't want to live. I don't. I don't want. It it makes the world so much less interesting to have fewer creatures. Yep. Yeah, I agree. And and and, you know, uh, like, you guys knew who Eo Wilson was. I think he's dead now. Yeah. Yeah. Jim, do you know who I don't know yeah. who he is? He, 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 he wrote some very important books. One of them was Concilia Concilium. And he was an entomologist. I heard him speak once at the Ecological Society for America meetings. He was a he was, you could say, an entomologist or an ecologist. But he built himself, and here's this word secular again as a secular humanist. So he's somebody that's ultimately, by his own definition, by his own de- his own way of defining himself and his values. He defined himself as a humanist, somebody that first and foremost cares about humanity. But, and it's a huge but, he thought that caring about human happiness entailed looking out for the natural world. Mm -hmm. That they were intricately linked.
2: Absolutely, absolutely.
0: So it's not just like we're doing what's right for the creature's sake because of the sake of the creature. We're not doing what's – we're doing it for our own selfish reasons.
2: Yeah. And it's too easy for this selfish approach for people to say, well, we've got cows and corn and rice and all the basics that we consume daily. What the heck do we need a furbish lousewort for? What do we need a jumping mouse in California for? And they go down the list. They pretty much write off any species that they don't require for food or shelter or right. perhaps having as a pet. And then you go to the you carry that to an extreme. And what are we looking at? We're not going to have bluebirds. We're not going to have hummingbirds. There's three hummingbird species right now that are down to fewer than a thousand in the entire species for an oh species. A hummingbird, for gosh sake. When, when, do you, do that? when do you think you know. that started? That what's
1: that started? trend where hunters, I don't want to say they don't care about that kind of stuff. But I'm sure there's going to be people that really criticize us talking this way. Where you have to care about, you know, you heard that saying, what's good for the herd is good for the bird. You have to care, care about the bird as well. When do you think that trend where hunters stopped caring about the bird happened?
2: I, I don't think they stopped caring so much as they didn't start caring. They were focused uh, as a hunter, a young man coming up or a young woman you, coming up into the fold. You want to hunt. Your focus is on getting your first de- bird, your first buck, whatever. That's natural. That's just human nature. You want to be one of the adults doing something important, putting food on the table, et cetera. So there's your focus. If you don't have mentors who, while you're doing that, tell you, you hear that little chickadee over there? That's a black-capped chickadee. Look at that. That little bitty thing will survive winter with no external heat source, finding what remnants of food there are in a forest that's under three feet of snow. That is a tough animal. Tougher than me, tougher than you. Got to respect that chickadee. And you just go down the list so that you teach a respect and an appreciation for the wonders of nature. And then you, as a hunter, are a part of that. The same as the wolf, the coyote, the lion, any predator. We have just as much right to harvest nature's abundance as they do. Um, I think we are the only animal that cares about our prey. You don't see wolves and, and any other predator working overtime to improve the habitat for the things that they eat. They just go out and get something, tear it up, and eat it. Yeah. We're the only animal that actually cares about it and shows a little bit of concern and helps other animals. Yet we get accused all the time from by the anti-hunters for being heartless and cruel, and we're the only animal that destroys everything, when it's really quite the opposite. But the one mistake we make is that we overplay our hand, and that's been sort of the history of endangered species. Man moves into a new island. He's never been there before, and suddenly all the birds are gone the tortoises are gone, whatever they can easily catch is gone until yeah. their stasis is, is developed and when things balance out. But basically, you have to have the kinds of controls we do now under this North American Management Program for Wildlife Use, in which we, what do we take? Probably 10% of the population of anything, and, and a very tiny percentage of all the animals out there that we're allowed to even hunt and eat. When you do the numbers, you know, there's just not very much. small percentage. So. That's the way it, I mean, I always harp on sustainable use for hunting. I think that's where we have to land eventually is that how can we as a people sustain nature while using it? Because we have to use it. Nature provides everything we need to survive. And instead of replacing nature's produce and production with man-made things like petroleum products that make clothing, vinyl shoes, vinyl this and that, plastic, this and everything's plastic now. And the greenies wear it and celebrate it while they run me down for wearing a coyote skin. Well, the coyote skin is all natural, biodegradable, <laughs> shade grown, free range, and they, they reject it. This is nature's abundance. She gave it to us to use without destroying the planet by drilling more oil wells and having plastic pollution all the way up to the North Pole. Boy, did I get on at that time! <laughs> <laughs> That's great, man. I never
1: thought of it that way.
2: <laughs> so, yeah, you know, I think this is why hunters do what they do. And and I'm not running hunters down. I was. I think most of us start off pretty ignorant. We're interested in the hunt that stuff. part.
0: You're get. It, it, I almost feel this is something i thought of, about a fair bit. I look back at those days as. The glory days Oh sure, of my youth when I just got to do it and I didn't even not only did I know that you that it was an option to advocate for it and it just never even crossed my mind I just enjoyed it and mm-hmm. I uh, Ron <laughs> I'll admit that that period went on way longer than it should have <laughs> way, like maybe when i was i did a couple things add acts of advocacy that i've already covered but they were all based on access and my own hunting they weren't based on conservation mm-hmm. it, it wasn't it wasn't until my late 30s that i started giving back in the way i should have hmm been doing all along.
2: Well, you know, as I was saying, it's just kind of human nature. There are there are those stages that a hunter goes through. It's like you want to get something, and then you want to get your limit, and then you want to yes. get the big trophy, and then you get older, and you've done it all, and you finally go. You know, I just like to be out there. If I see one, I see one. If I shoot one, I shoot one. But if I don't, I don't care. And I'm r- rapidly approaching that stage myself. um Yeah, I still want to hunt, but I don't have this. I'm not applying in every state to get the limited tag so I can go for the biggest buck and bull anymore. I just want to go hunting and, and know that there are still some wild places in which I can function as an integral part of nature, doing my part as a predator. And then in the off season, I'm also doing my part at, as restoration. I have a little ranch here. My wife and I are planting trees for wildlife, food plots for wildlife, got CRP grass on. We have no cattle running on the place. We're doing You're all the, in Idaho now, correct? Yes. Yes. We're in Idaho. So we have impressive numbers of sharp-tailed grouse and pheasants and gray partridge, a few ruffed grouse, um, mule deer, cougar, elk, moose, whatever comes through this country. We are trying to improve the habitat for them. But then it's a special circumstance in that we're both retired. Well, I could be retired, but I keep doing what I do. But you know, we're of, of an age at which we have paid the mortgage and we don't have big bills. Most people are struggling and they can't afford to dedicate the acreage that we do is just to wildlife. But it strikes me that plenty of people who don't could, there are plenty of big landowners, fairly wealthy landowners who are still fixated on that. I have to wring every last blade of grass out of this ground and put it into a cow for my bottom line. And if we maintain that attitude in our culture, which we pretty much teach everybody, you gotta maximize production. That's what's the most important. So if it means that your hummingbirds are going to go extinct because you've plowed all the flowers under to plant wheat, tough luck. we got to feed the world's starving billions.
0: I would, I just finished up a project. I'm a research ecologist looking at trying to get wild flowers to grow, flowering plants to grow on CRP lands mm-hmm. and in order to support pollinator insects and the, And we we did half the work in Colorado, Eastern Colorado, and half the work in Eastern Montana. And the fields in Eastern Colorado, you could go miles with no fence row like fence row habitat this goes back to your with the cows eating every blade of grass right uh, maximizing production so there's just no edge row habitat down there it's become the most and i have a friend that lives in north dakota and he grew up there and there was tons of deer and pheasants and now it's the same way it's kind of like a ecological desert by and large and not a shell of what it was when he was a kid and Then there we we have some of our site three a few of our sites are on this guy's place who's somehow he's from that culture he just grew up in that he's a farmer grew up in that area but something something made this guy think that that wasn't okay I don't know what it was he just seems like all of his neighbors but. And he started planting hedgerows, shelter belts, and it's this oasis. And he's mm-hmm. still he's still making his living as a farming as a farmer by I don't know, my <laughs> casual assessment of his his quality of life and style well. Okay, not quality of life, but his material possessions. He was just as well off as his neighbors neighbors, but he has deer, mule deer, white tails, and pheasants coming out of his ass. There's just wildlife everywhere on his place. And when hunting season comes around, all of his neighbors come over and ask if they can hunt.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> I just
0: can't imagine not <laughs> wanting to. That was a joke. I can't, not making that trade, given what five percent of your income to make your farm, yeah, twenty times more interesting.
2: Yeah, more productive of wildlife. You know, I know what you're saying, and it's it's true to a significant degree. And and again, I think it's a cultural thing. I grew up in farm family. Both my grandparents farmed, but dad stopped before I was out of place, you know, but got a strong background in it, worked on farms all growing up and everything. And I get the the mindset. It was tough in those days to survive. I mean, we, we were in an outhouse. We got running water eventually, you know, but a lot of these friends of mine and family, they were still using outhouses, didn't have any running water in the house. Some of them didn't have electricity yet or a single light bulb and that kind of stuff because they didn't have the money. They came out of the dirty 30s and they learned that you've got to scratch and claw just to stay alive. So they're growing their own gardens or growing their own Food. They have a hog that they butcher, chickens laying eggs, they butcher a a steer, and then they, of course, produce enough to sell them so they can afford the car and the gas and all the other accoutrements of life that are expected. But then you've got to consider what society does to these farmers. You need to be the big shot farmer. Billy Bob over here went to school and he's got an ag degree and he's plowing up, taking out all of his fence line and he's maximizing production using these new techniques. And you're still using that old fashioned stuff where you've got weeds along the fence line and weeds behind the barn and that's just terrible. You need to clean that up. You have trained these people to want to succeed in in a program that you've defined for them. And human nature, do we want to be successful in in the eyes of our peers, or do we want to be some kind of a wild man they're all making fun of because we've got a bunch of weeds and pheasants instead of a nicely mown lawn and a new RV to go down to Vegas in the wintertime because we're so successful farmers? Can't blame the farmer for wanting to make it one way or the other. Personal choice would say, I value wildlife the way your friend in North Dakota does so much that I'm Eastern, willing- Eastern Colorado. He's oh, no, you're my, talking
0: about my friend.
2: Gotcha. Yeah, your Sorry. friend up in North Dakota. Yep. So if, if he's saying, my value system tells me that I love to have more deer, sharp tails, and pheasants on my place than an RV that I can take south all winter, great, good for you. I'm on your side rather than the guy who's plowing everything up so that he can get what we consider. And, and what most people in the city get is all those toys that we think we need, his, his head's in the right place. But that's just my perception. I'm sure the birds and the animals would agree with me, but they don't get a voice in this one. But th- that's, I think our responsibility as conservationist hunters is to express that, articulate it and tell that story. And again, you get down to the mentoring. If you've got a kid who's coming up and wants to be a hunter like dad or his uncle or something, you've got to teach him more than that's a buck, that's a doe, shoot the one with the horns and use this bullet to do it because it's the fastest. You know, that stuff's great and it's important, but you've got to bring in the conservation and the real rest of the story, as Paul Harvey used to say. Mm.
1: Ron, do you think the hunting... uh Powers that be, whether that's companies, whether that's hunting celebrities, do you think that they need to expand the conservation method or oh. message and and actually mean it?
2: Absolutely. Think- yeah, absolutely. And who was it? You said you interviewed Randy. Was it Newberg? Yeah. And he was saying he didn't get the hits when every. He- did a conservation topic? Yeah, yeah. It, it gets five okay.
1: percent of his normal views. He, they, yeah, his audience not, wants. Yeah, to his see, normal audience.
2: They want to see what what
0: what you see on the Sportsman Channel. Yeah, they they the want Sportsman. to see him.
2: They want to see him out hunting. What's the gun he's using? What camouflage? What pack? All that stuff that they we dote on. Yeah, and then so, he wants. To, then they want to see him whack one. Yeah, see you whack and one. It's right. frustrating yeah. to him. Yeah, absolutely. It was a similar deal when I was doing those TV shows. You know, I always tried to slip a message into the show. And that, to me, is the only successful way that to do it. You've got to put a little spoonful of medicine in with your cup of sugar. They want all the candy. And then you have to slip in a subtle conservation message that gradually begins to sink in so they can appreciate it. If you just make it strictly about, hey, our show today is about how we're going to save the endangered did app. It's not going to get an audience. Yeah. And I see that too with my stuff. Every once in a while, I'll throw up a picture of some critter and I'll make some comment about how wonderful it is. And I try to tie it in, even though it's a plant, a native flower or something. I love to photograph the native flowers out in the ranch here. And then they're just gorgeous. And I put them up and I tr- I know I got to say something about hunting or they won't pay any attention to it. So what does this flower have to do with hunting? Well, did you know that this was a major food source for mule deer in the springtime when they're raising their fawns? And if they don't have it, the production goes down because it's got such high nutrition. And if you don't manage your grasslands properly, the cows eat it up until it's gone because every year they just keep hammering it and hammering it. And the overgrazing of that particular plant results in a lower population or an unhealthier population of deer. Little things like that. But But if if you
1: didn't make that correlation, people wouldn't give two shits about it.
2: No. And I can even, I always thought, man, if I get a really dramatic picture of a big buck or a bull or something and put it up, I'll get a lot of hits. Nah, because they've seen it over and over and over again. When I was first starting out in this business, if you got a good photograph of a big bull elk, holy mackerel, nobody had them. So everyone wanted to see it. I could sell a picture to field and stream back in the early eighties for four times what I could get today. If they even publish anymore, I don't know if they went, I think they went online strictly, but there's so many people. What what publication field and stream.
0: Uh, Yeah, I think you're right that they're uh, strictly online. Well, okay. So help me, help me with this. Why, why is it, why are there more pictures
2: of big stuff now? Oh, because it's become a popular sort of an excuse for hunting or instead of hunting. um, And the cameras are so much better. Once they got the digital stuff, you can go out and take a picture that's not very good. Bring it home to Photoshop and make it look outstanding if you learn how to run Photoshop and manipulate it and everything. So the editors are inundated. Back when I was starting out, the editors were begging for good images. Hey, Ron, you got a good shot of a a mule deer buck with four buy four antlers sticking past his ears. All I can find are little ones and they're all fuzzy and out of focus and stuff. That stuff was all manual back in those days. You had to work your butt off to get it. And as that became more and more popular, a lot of, well, what I found was that a lot of retired doctors and dentists and lawyers and whatnot, their dream was to do what I was doing. They wanted to be outdoors and hunt and fish and, and camp. And and wildlife photography is a great way to do that stuff. If you don't draw a tag or the season is closed, you're hunting with a camera. It's the same passion. It's the same techniques. And the drive is there. So they all went out. And then they would give their stuff away because they were retired. They were well set. They had plenty of money. They're just having fun and they want to see their name in the magazine. So you'd get their They'd get a cover of a magazine and get, hey, look what I got, man. I got the cover of Outdoor Life.
0: So I was just on the Blood Origins podcast, and they were talking about this guy. I can't remember his name, but he likes to go out with his rifle and count coup on, on game
2: animals. You mean he just shoots them?
0: No, no. He... Puts his crosshairs on. Oh, he pretends he's I, I could have, have gotten that one. Yeah.
1: yeah. yeah. Oh, gotcha. Gotcha. But I would imagine it with the, the popularity of trail cameras over the last 20 years, those big bucks and big bulls, everybody and their brother knows about them. And so you, you you can identify an area and then get on them during the daylight and get some pictures where, you know, back in the 70s and 80s, you know, when when you got a. You got a big bull. I'm sure it was more, more scarce uh,
2: for for notoriety. Yeah, it's harder to come up with that stuff. Most of it's done in the national parks, though. You go up in the yeah. Ban Jasper or Yellowstone or Glacier right. or Rocky Mountain, wherever those animals are acclimated to human activity. You just walk right in there, and there they are. And they're oh, yeah. gotcha. That makes sense. Yeah, that's the easy it's, one. It's, but
0: it's it's not if you contemplate. By if you contemplate human nature, at least the way I conceive of human nature, it's not that surprising that people are in people like to watch exciting stuff. Mm-hmm. They're not they're not, not you should care about this mountain range because it's the home to the blah blah blah. Yeah, they, they, they did you know guys know that Pornhub gets way more visits than netflix or amazon no but it doesn't surprise me that does not surprise me like and i'm the same way i would i would start yawning during the conservation message on your show ron i don't allow myself to watch hunting tv because i think it's destroying real hunting or at least degrading Degrading it. it yeah but but is that's not to say i don't enjoy it just as much as the next guy you know yeah, what we, i want to see is i want to see the big one get shot and all that just like anybody else uh so yeah it's, so it's a tough tough deal you know the deal that the, the the yeah the 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 deal that randy seems to be trying to strike the Exchange he's trying to make, he's using the exciting stuff, the shooting of the critter, Uh to lure people in to the conservation message. Yeah, and I don't, I don't know, I don't, I don't think it's going to work. If if it would have worked, if it was going to work, it seems like it would have worked already. I. Why it just doesn't seem to work. It doesn't I... seem to be to this idea that I'm going to, I'm it's almost like a sacrificial act. I'm gonna film me killing this critter in hopes of making people care about other members of this species. Mm-hmm. Seems to be what he's working towards. I don't know what he would I wish I would have asked him uh, cuz he's very frustrated that people don't tune in to the yeah, conservation and, stuff. Why does he if it hasn't worked this far, why does he think it's gonna? Yeah, you
2: know, I suppose he can tweak it and modify it and just watch the numbers and see if something starts to to work, but I, you know, there's there's not going to be an easy solution. I've sometimes thought if there was some way that conser- that say fish and game agencies could use conservation as an incentive, in order to get your hunting license or your tags or something, instead of just saying, all right, anybody who's got a license in the state can apply for this tag. Go ahead and throw your name in the hopper and you might get drawn. Why not give some benefits to somebody who's done some conservation work? Like if oh, you have checked in, idea. yeah, you, a, you checked in at the wildlife.
0: Preference point. If yeah. you show up to this stream. Yeah.
2: There you go. Day. Oh, that is,
1: yeah. Oh, that's a great in idea.
2: Money. Well, I don't know why they don't do something like that, because then you've got that is a investment. mic dropping idea. <laughs> if I had a mic here, I'd drop him.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. That is brilliant.
2: But I mean, that, that those kinds of ideas are what we need to come up with and implement. There are enough hunters who care about this sort of thing and understand it that I think we could probably float it by a fish and game group and and make it happen. You could maybe go to a Rocky Mountain Elk or Ducks Unlimited and places like that and say, you guys are doing great conservation work. You're saving millions of acres of habitat. It's really impressive. But you know the struggle. And here's an idea. Could you push it? Because I think they've got the horsepower to get something like that done. Oh, you know, I have... there's this small group of us in this
0: cowpoke little town I live in there starting a thing. People come out here in droves to eastern Montana to hunt, as I'm sure you know. And we got this plot program, block management, out-of-state license fees fund it, allow people to hunt, and we're trying to bolster the pro- pro- program and protect it because ranchers are, I'm, I'm afraid that it's losing its luster because they can make more money with Something like land trust or mm-hmm. outfitters and stuff. And we're doing this thing where we foiled all the everybody that the, the names and addresses of everybody that's hunted block management last year. And we're going to send them a mailer and invite them to come out and do some work on these ranches for a weekend. Mm-hmm. That's another one. We might get a few, but we'd get a few more if it was. You get a preference point. You bet
1: huge,
2: huge. Yeah. So I think another thing fishing game has to do in concert with that, they've got the opportunity to educate, but they're going to potentially lose money because they're they're always even though I worked at fishing game agencies, a couple of them, and mm. most of these guys are sincere. What, in what
0: role? What in role? What role? Just for the
2: They call it INE, Information and Education. I was a, a assistant editor on one of the publications that they did. I was a photographer. I was uh, I would talk to radio stations and TV do interviews, just put out the message propaganda. I was mm-hmm. a fishing game propagandist.
0: Mm-hmm. Yep.
2: <laughs> so you you're trying to get that
0: here in Montana.
2: Yeah, there's a real good guy in Montana. Yeah, several years ago, who's excellent at his job, and he's gone on to do a lot of great things in this field outside of government. Um, but you know, government. If you're working in government, you're stuck. You know, you can do good work at fish and game or wildlife service or something, but you can't really push ahead because you're under the thumb of whatever programs that they have and the limitations they put on you and all that stuff. That's why I checked out. I still imagine that I'm or like to imagine that I'm doing some good conservation work, probably more effective with what I'm doing now than what I did then because I'm getting message out without the burden of people saying, well, he just works for fish and game and they're just a bunch of college educated biologists who don't know crap because I live on land. I'm a farmer, a rancher, and I know better than they do. So I'm not going to listen to this guy.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And, you so know, so stepping I like to think, away
0: from Stepping away from the titles yeah. and the
2: agencies and all that stuff gives you more right. cred.
1: You're a guy uh, that has boots on the ground.
2: Yeah, I think so. So, But the problem with the Fish and Game signing up on something like this is where do they get their funding? They need more hunters in order to pay the game wardens and the biologists and all the other stuff. And I know plenty of people think they have too much money and they're taking our tax dollars. Most of them don't get any tax dollars. It's all licensed sales. Some of the Pittman Robinson funds and then different cost share programs with both private individuals or private businesses and some federal programs that, okay, here's your federal money. I get 50% of whatever you need for improving the habitat for whatever you're doing and on. and on. It's a complicated mess. But at any rate, they need money. And they're always driving old trucks that are limping along. They don't have enough gear. And they're struggling all the time. And that's the way it was when I was working back in the 70s and 80s. It was like, geez, what, can we, we get something that works? This, ah, that's the best we can afford. You know, the budgets are tight. And on and on it went. Yeah, so you've always in this got state that. right
0: now, I don't want to interrupt you too much, but i got to interject that in this state, they're they're beleaguered by the politicians. They're beleaguered yeah. by the politicians. Oh, the sure. politicians are coming down on them because the politicians don't like the biologists because the biologists are telling them shit that they don't want to hear. Yep. Because what they're really trying to do is use the elk and the deer and the antelope as a source of revenue where the biologists are trying to manage the resource Mm -hmm. And provide opportunity to the citizens of the state. Yeah, It's Yeah, it's all everything you said plus
2: that. Yeah, yeah. There's always that political pressure, and I saw that when I was working in at these agencies too, because. Some powerful big business in the state would come in and put a little pressure on them, or a big rancher would say, "You know, I think I've got too much deer, you too many deer on my place. You know, your biologists are saying that there's this many, and I see too many of them on my haystacks. You need to double the number of tags and kill them off." And that was or you're not going to re- get my donation next yeah. next yeah, yeah, uh, exactly. election cycle. So in a you know an agricultural state like Montana or at least eastern Montana and the Dakotas, Kansas, and all those big big ag states. Those ag people pretty much can control the fish and game. Fish and game can make recommendations and try to do their thing, but when push comes to shove, the politics are saying you've got limits. Just because your biologist says this is the optimum approach, you don't necessarily get to do it. And a friend of mine moved out of South Dakota into Wyoming because he was disgusted with the low numbers of pronghorn and deer because of that sort of pressure from the ag people saying we've got too much animal damage on our crops. You've got to put out more tags and fish and game was kind of hogtied and had to do it and this kid always said as soon as I crossed the line into montana or, or wyoming i'd see double the numbers of everything twice as many deer twice as many pronghorns same <laughs> habitat same habitat right and that there, shows, there it's
0: like a fence line comparison yes. it shows yep. the value of
2: management yep so those are some of the political things that we weren't going to talk about. But this is reality. This is real life. This is the way it all works. But I do think that brainstorming like we're doing here, we can come up with ideas like this that might help out. But we've got to make, like, as I said earlier, we've got to give that cup of sugar with a little bit of medicine slipped in there to get these guys to buy in. You know, you you hate to insult somebody. He's a dedicated hunter, and you know he loves the deer or the elk or whatever he hunts. And if he does it long enough, he's going to begin to appreciate all aspects of it. You know, it's like, oh, I just love the smell of rotting cottonwood leaves in the fall. It takes me back to my first... pronghorn hunt or mule deer camp or something like that. Then he starts to notice a few other things like the birds and different animals. And gosh, I've noticed that whenever I see a badger, there's a pronghorn nearby or something. That was pretty cool. And they get sucked into it the way I did when I was a kid. I was just all about this stuff. I would go out when the hunt hunting season wasn't even open and crawl around in the mud and the blood and the tears, just so I could get more of that nature connection. And the more people hunt, I think the more they start to appreciate that, but well, if, some of them are late bloomers. Because I, if that's true, I think that you're
0: right. I think that that's what cult. Well, what, uh, my concern, my appreciation was cultivated by Time Outdoors. But
2: then there's, I think there's, there's some dudes that are in their fifties and they're still out there just for the likes and the bullshit. Yeah, you're right. You're right. I, I know guys that were into their sixties and still driving around shooting things out of the window. Had no appreciation for anything other than killing it.
0: Yeah. So, which yeah, is unfortunate, but, but that doesn't detract from your point. Right. There's still a large contingent of hunters that become more and more thankful and appreciative of the natural world through hunting. There's no doubt about it. And, that's, and I, that's our saving I, grace if we have one, I, I yeah. guess. And,
2: and you and I, all of us can facilitate that when these when we come in contact with these people now, i've hunted with guys who i would make some comment about the songbirds i was seeing and identifying him he's saying what what are you talking about that's just well, one of those lbj's and i said lbj what's that little brown jobbies they're all just little brown jobs. <laughs> what does that matter we're here we're here to hunt let's go shoot a deer so he couldn't appreciate it. but hanging out with me he gradually started paying a little bit of attention and he would put the binocular up and go Oh, look, there's a cool yellow stripe on that one. That's kind of neat. He was starting to get some appreciation for it. So I think if, if hunters hang with naturalist hunters who appreciate that stuff and they're effusive about it, excited about it, and share that excitement, I think it will spread. It's too often, too easy for these guys to beat the macho hunter who shot the big one. And that's their focus. And then they take someone out and it's like, hey, buddy, if you want to learn how to shoot the big one, watch what I do. This is all about killing the big one. And they know a lot about tracks and where the animals move to and all the important stuff for that. But they've never gotten that appreciation for everything else. So the people that they bring with them are trailing in that wake of oblivion to the overall picture. So it's going to take a lot of work from a lot of people. But hiding, and, and I see this with a lot of my conservation hunter friends, you know, the kind who don't have to shoot a limit or the bigger buck. They don't want to associate with the guys who do that. It's like, uh, I don't enjoy that attitude, so I don't want to hang out with this guy. And I can understand that, too. But I think you might have to do it to a degree. And, you know, good old boy, appreciate that. We got the good ones. Now let's kind of set back, take a break, and watch how these nuthatches come in here and feed on that dead carcass. What are you talking about? They'll watch this little bird come out of that tree and peck fat off of that that animal that we just shot and we left the fat behind so we don't have to pack it out. That's gonna feed that little bird. He's gonna eat that. The chickadee's gonna eat some of it. The woodpeckers are gonna come down and eat. Even the yellow rumped warblers will come down and eat fat off of a deer or an elk or anything you leave out there. Those kinds of little things I think will start to add up for these guys.
0: I don't watch Randy, but what you're saying right now makes me wonder wonder if he that it lends credibility to his approach. If that's I don't know how much he's diving into the nuance of what's going on on these hunts but what you're saying lends credibility to what he's doing i think i have a burning question kind of a hanging chad you said that what you're doing now you feel as though that might has holds potential what what exactly is that
2: i'm not quite following the question what
0: you're doing now you're saying currently you're not involved in the agencies and okay. what you're doing now in terms of some kind of content, I imagine, okay. Okay. or maybe not. Right. How, how are, how are you cultivating a, a sense of um stewardship mm. in hunters?
2: Yeah. I can tell you right, right up front, I'm not doing enough because none of us. As, are. But. Yeah. So what I'm doing now is I've got Ron Spomer outdoors, YouTube channel, Ron Spomer outdoors, podcast which is also oh. on youtube oh oh great. And, okay. yeah yeah and, and a website so i'm tapering off the writing for the publications a lot of them have tapered off anyway uh, but there are plenty of websites that want me to write for them but it's uh, you know i've been doing it for so many years and it's the same old same old but on my own i can address these things but i've been a little bit slow in the conservation message because just like randy said they want to see something about the new gun, the new scope, the new bullet, the ballistics, all the what do I need to do to kill a bigger one faster and better. So it's a little and bit you're, hard. And you are,
0: you're something of an expert in, in, in those domains, right?
2: Yeah, I studied that stuff for years. So it, people are hungry for it. So And they get such bad information from a lot of places and, and bullshit, I guess we could call it, you know, like, oh, you've got to have a 458 mag to kill a, a moose, you got to have a bigger hammer, you'll kill them instantly. No, 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 you got to have a fast bullet. It's all shock. That's what kills them. And so I try to come down to reality on this stuff. You know, it all works under the right conditions, et cetera, et cetera. But here's what's really happening. Physics, ballistics, what happens with the bullet going downrange? Why should you use the wider bullet or a longer, skinnier bullet? What's ballistics coefficient all about, et cetera, et cetera. It's interesting to these people. So they, they suck in on that and they learn things and I enjoy teaching them They sometimes teach me, there's some guys out there who know way more than I do, and they're just laymen, but they just dote on this stuff. So we're all sort of helping one another. During all of that, I try to get in some conservation messages, and that's the hard part, because if it's couched on, let's say a thumbnail says something about tactics for moose hunting, I won't get nearly the hits as if I'd have said, best cartridge or best bullet for killing a moose. Then I'm going to get the audience. So during those presentations, I have to try, and that's where I'm falling short, to slip in those little conservation tidbits and natural history things. Overall though, of course, they can come to my website, Ronsplomer Outdoors, and then scrolling through there and seeing the different cartridge and rifles and scopes and things. There's suddenly up pops this interesting image of a bird they hadn't seen before. And it says, hunting for the lesser prairie chicken. Last chance. They may be on the endangered species list or something. They might read that and learn something. So, But I I definitely need to uh, knuckle knuckle under and do more conservation work on my channel. It's just that, (laughs) like Randy said, if you don't keep your numbers up with all the stuff they're really interested in, you're going to lose your audience. And then where are you? So it's a compromise. Mm -hmm. That is tough.
0: That is tough. Yeah, but, uh, yeah. Go, uh, Jim. I'm I'm dominating the, the questioning. You need no,
2: to... I'm dominating the answering.
1: <laughs> oh no, this is no. Great. I, I was gonna chime in. I great. I've learned a lot about different calibers. If you want to learn about calibers and shooting and ballistics, I mean Ron's a guy to go to. But I I think we'd we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about hunting TV and and how it's changed over the years and and uh we we when we initially talked we we shared share a little you shared some conversations about some of the shortcomings of hunting tv and and even out writing, writing it it prompted me to think about uh experience that happened to me i wrote an article and was published this is a while a while back this is like 15 years ago maybe even longer but it was for a fishing magazine and the uh When it came to print, I actually had to go back and look to see what was mine, what I wrote versus what was in the article, because it was like almost unrecognizable. Wow. And you had mentioned that something similar happened to you with editors asking you to change stuff. Did, Did you experience that a lot?
2: You know, it wasn't a lot, but it was enough that it it kind of disturbed me that if this isn't reality. So what happens is that the everybody has to make money. They're not pu- publishing these magazines because they they want you to have a good time reading it. They're selling advertising. So the yeah. magazine says, "Ron, we'll give you fifty dollars. You write an article for us, and we will then get advertisers to give us five hundred dollars to put their ad beside your article." Your article pulls in the readers. they see the ad, they sell the product, and everybody's happy. We're all getting rich. A variation of that came with the TV stuff. All right, you've got the channel or the TV show sponsored by five, six, eight, ten companies, whatever, splitting it up, and if you make a bunch of money, they pay the host pittance to do the show, and then they pay themselves a whole bunch of money once they've collected all this advertising, and the host of the show is expected to use the products, and oftentimes hawk the products. Hey, this is the greatest thing ever, man! And why am I saying this? Because they paid for this show. <laughs> you're right. And you and people aren't stupid. You know they know that you're being paid. You're the host of the show, and it's brought to you by company X, Y, Z. You're going to say that they the must
0: great- be somewhat stupid, or the model wouldn't work.
2: <laughs> you get a point there. <laughs> how about how about the model that involves a uh, a a, a lovely figure with a good set of teeth who's never hunted before, and she's now the star of a big TV show about. Oh, how to but that's that's <laughs> hunting in the in
0: in the two thousand twenties. exactly fucking that. <laughs> like, let's get some necro- necrophilia and bestiality involved and Obviously. some sex appeal, and make some shit happen here. That's <laughs> and this is the thing that. Oh, I could go on and on. I don't want to. I, oh, I got high hit his hot 20 button, minutes. Yeah. About how hunting is a sacred thing. Yeah. And it's a special thing. And I just hate that crap. But go go ahead. Oh, my God. I got to, you guys carry on. I need a 30 second break. I got to go okay. pour me another whiskey. Just because of you having that topic well, having come up. Uh,
1: ironically, what was added to my article. Was a lot of advertisement in the sense of guides that fished the river mm-hmm. um, that I was writing about, which happened to be the Kenai River in Alaska. That's uh, been written about a thousand times, but nonetheless. And I had never fished with the guides. And I just got this article and I'm like, you gotta be effing kidding me. Like, I felt deflated. In, in a sense, because they just added so much to the article and it didn't even feel like mine. Mm-hmm. But I would imagine that probably happens to aspiring writers all the time where they're, they're, I don't want to say manipulated, but, you know, they're eager to get stuff published. And, uh,
2: you know, I really hadn't had problems like that. Um, gosh, I mean, I've sold thousands of magazine articles and they when they come out. Pretty pretty much the way I did them. But then I have an English degree and I pride myself on getting grammar and syntax pretty right. Um, but occasionally they'll change it because when they do, I'll go, yeah, by golly, the editor was right. That that reads better the way he did it than I did. But it's not a major change. And it's only a few times that they did things like suggest, hey, Ron, we really need to stroke our advertiser this particular scope or, or rifle or something. Could you just say that you use that in your story instead of what you used? And I just said, sorry, but no, I didn't. I'm not going to lie like that. You figure some other way to get your advertising dollars. If you don't want the story, then don't buy it. But that didn't happen very often, but they plan it that way. You know, they'll say, hey, Ron, we want you to go on a hunt and use this particular gun and blah, blah, blah. Well, okay, I can do that because they're going to pay for the article and I can use whatever brand gun they want me to use because the hunt hasn't happened yet. But I'm not going to lie about it after the fact.
1: Well, my grammar is perfect, Ron. So,
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, I've, I've noticed that. <laughs> That's what
1: grammar is for, right? Make the yeah. correct.
2: Mm. <laughs> Where people use it. <laughs> <laughs> what
1: What do you think that uh, that some of the changes that you've seen that I mean, both good and bad. It doesn't matter. It doesn't all, have to be all bad. Uh, that hunting TV's taken over the last twenty years with the specific networks that tend to show 80% of their content for hunting. What's, mm. what are some of the changes that you've, you've, you've been able to see and go that's different than when I started, or
2: that's different than, than when I was doing it. Well, this may be a disappointing answer because this is true. I don't watch outdoor TV. I, even when I was doing it, I rarely watched any other shows because I really, I, I just didn't enjoy it. There were a few that were uh, what I thought were good, high-quality shows that had a message beyond the watch me kill something, but not too many. And so many of them became blatant advertisements for one particular piece of gear or something. And then they started pushing unethical, I thought, unethical performance And you use the newest high-tech whatever, and it'll make it easier for you. I get that. And it's a matter of degrees. We went through this stuff back in in the 20th century, too. Even before I came around, as I understand it, when smokeless powder came on in 1894, there were a whole bunch of old-timers who said, that's not fair it's not right i don't trust it i'm sticking with black powder and they lasted up until the 1930s in some cases they didn't want to have to
0: okay maybe as the lowest common denominator in terms of history of firearms you're gonna uh you're gonna have to
2: elaborate why would smokeless powder be unfair oh because it pushes your velocities up so much more you know, you were topping out at around at best 1,800 feet per second. And here you've got these new bottleneck cartridges with smokeless powder that has way more energy in that nitroglycerin and nitrocellulose than you ever got in the black powder. So you did can you know that, reach Jim? out farther. I you did you not know that? that.
1: No, I did not okay. know that.
0: I was trying to figure out how far
2: behind I am. Carry, carry no, on I... around. <laughs> yeah. So you know, that was the big change and then bottleneck cartridges. And then they got to going so fast that they had to put jackets on it. used to be you just shot a lead bullet. Well, the lead would strip off and it would be inaccurate and you'd have to clean the barrel because it was followed with lead. So they put this jacket around it. And then the bullets wouldn't perform because they were going so fast when they got there with so much energy that they would break up or they would expand so much that they couldn't reach inside the animal to get to the vitals. And that's why we continue to have all these developments in new bullets and new technology all the way around. But for the longest time in the 20th century, it was a race for velocity. Everybody wanted to go faster, and for a pretty good conservation reason, not just that now I can kill things farther and farther away, but now I can reduce my wounding and crippling because I'm guessing the distance to that animal. Right. And if my trajectory takes me six inches above my aim and then drops eight inches below my aim before 300 yards, and I guesstimate he's at 300 and he's really at – 310, I might hit him in the lower leg and he runs off crippled and blah, blah, blah. You can, you can make a shittier
0: guess and not have the negative consequences if your trajectory is flat. Exactly. Right.
2: Exactly. If you can keep that trajectory flat enough to stay inside of a six or eight inch circle out to 250 or 300 yards, you've got that fudge factor. You can misjudge the range by 50 yards and still strike a killing blow in the vital zone. So good reason to have more velocity. What they didn't understand was ballistic efficiency of the bullet. That's the big push nowadays. Unfortunately, in addition to saying, okay, I'm going to use the most efficient bullet so it shoots even flatter, drifts less in the wind, less chance for following up a shot, crippling an animal. Great. Ah, but now that I can do that at 300 yards, why don't I try 600? And if I can do it at 600 with my new wind meter and my laser rangefinder, I might as well try a thousand. So then you get down to personal ethics and how do you draw the line on that? And people will chew me out one way or the other. You know, if I suggest that I took a long shot, they'll just say, oh, I'm worthless because a a good sportsman would never do that. And if I say I limit all my shots to only 200 yards, a lot of the guys will say, oh, I'm not going to read you, listen to you, pay any attention to you anymore because you're a Luddite. You're an old FUD. You don't know what you're talking about. So to to keep an audience, I like to address all of this stuff and be fair about it. But what I do come down to on the long-range shooting is time of flight. Regardless how good you are and your equipment is, that bullet still requires a second or two to get to those long-range targets. And during that time span, what does the animal do? He could turn around. He could bed down. He could take a step. Suddenly, your heart shot turned into a gut shot. All these things you don't have any control over, so regardless how much of an expert you are, I think you really need to consider that sort of thing. But I'm, I'm not arrogant. I, it goes to a little.
0: It goes a little deeper than that, even, and I, it, it the technology is going to continue to improve, and I think there's going to come a day. When a thousand yard shot is has a higher probability let's say it's t- t- the year twenty one twenty two a um, hundred years from now the the chances of a lethal kill shot then a 1000 yards might be greater than somebody making a 300 yard shot now Are you with me so far i am but that I don't... the technology could improve to a point yes that a 1000 yard shot a hundred years from now has a higher chance of killing the animal than a 300 yard shot now yeah so yeah. it's so at some point, and then it's going to be that. Well, and I'm sure they could work this out now. That you could be sitting in your living room. I bet we have the technology for this now. Oh yeah, they've You're already sitting done in it. your living room. Your game camera go- detects an image. It goes beep, beep 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 beep, and you have a firearm leg screwed to the tree, and it. And you push a button on your armchair. And it's Bluetooth or what the hell ever, and it kills the critter. Mm-hmm. We we can do whatever we it, we can do whatever we want now in terms of technology, and yeah. and there's gonna it's kind of like the abortion debate where we just had there's a, this continuum where does it become a life where does it become Unethical. Unethical. Well, and it, 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 it's a, well, somebody was telling me there was, there's no chance an animal could smell, hear, or see you at more than a 400 yards or something. So that's mm-hmm. logical cutoff. And that holds, some, I mean, that's less arbitrary than most thing the guidelines I could imagine. But at some point, we just got to agree. When is it not hunting anymore? Well, yeah.
1: Let's let's talk about that. Let's say, for example, like when is enough enough? Like the six five three hundred Weatherby flat fast. I mean, that's a thousand plus yard gun all day long, right, Ron? Oh yeah. I mean, when does the technology end? Are they going to keep going something bigger and better?
2: Well, see the point. I think further. Yeah,
1: faster and further. um, Yeah.
2: The point I think we have to uh, agree to arrive at here eventually is a definition of hunting. What is hunting versus shooting something? Why are you hunting? If you just want to kill an animal using your technology, get up in a helicopter. You can shoot anything you want. Just fly over it and shoot it. Why cut it off at it? it has to be a firearm. With all the new technological advances in that firearm, you're really no longer hunting if you can routinely drop it on an animal <coughs> at a thousand yards where he has no clue that you're in the universe. Right. So... but. I just don't know that we have the right, well, I guess we do as a culture, the right to decide these things. Because we've decided that you can't have more than three rounds in your shotgun for waterfowl hunting. You can't have more than five shots in your semi-automatic 30-06 for deer hunting in some states. There's all sorts of restrictions that are put on the tools we can and can't use in different jurisdictions. So I guess we do have sort of the right to do that.
0: Oh, when you throw those examples out there, because the first thing that came to mind is, I just don't think the hunting community is capable of that level of philosophical introspection.
2: But then you gave concrete examples where they have made. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You bet this was back, you know, 100 years ago or 80 years ago. In the 1930s, there were a lot of these changes, the waterfall stuff where we saw that, oh, my God, you know, we're going to lose our canvas backs and we can't, we think the giant Canada goose has gone extinct already. Like, well, we've got to control this stuff. What's the problem? Well, we got rid of market hunting. That was a big one. But now these guys are going out with these new high-capacity auto-loading shotguns and the pump shotguns too with the tubular magazines where you can hold six shells and they can go boom, 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 and get six birds or shoot into a flock and get 25. There's got to be some way to control that stuff. So they went with a mechanical approach. You Sorry, but you're illegal if you hunt with more than two rounds in a magazine and one in the chamber. That's your limit. You can't use a gauge larger than 10. They used to have eight gauges and four gauges and two gauges and punt guns, for God's sake. They had outlaw all that stuff. So, yeah, could true. we outlaw long-range rifles? You know, I just both- had a
0: I just <laughs> had a guest on that convinced me to add as I have these bullet points that that well, then Jim has worked on them as well. What it would take to save hunting because Jim and I both feel that the future of publicly accessible non-pay hunting is under severe threat. Mm -hmm. And what would it take to save it? And I added, we had, I had a, this guy, as he gave up his hunting social media account in exchange for me, adding this ninth point, which should be to advocate or or say that to, we should be promoting, advocating for supporting primitive weapons districts and seasons what's your
2: Mm -hmm. thoughts there i i certainly understand it and i don't think that it hurts this is becoming a cultural question really not so much a biological one because biologically fishing game can control the harvest with the tags that they send out unless there's poaching going on But if we've got a a good program, we've got game wardens to control poaching and other hunters turning people in and all the usual stuff. It just becomes a matter of how long is your season, how many tags you put out, and what is the uh, percentage of kill. You know, 70% of your tagged hunters killing. Well, then you have to limit the number of tags for that population. If it's rising or falling, you make those judgment calls. We've always been doing that. So you could allow somebody to hunt elk out of a helicopter but you might only have 10 permits available because everybody's going to get one. Is it ethical? Is it sporting? All of those things are human constructs. As I've said earlier, the wolf doesn't care. A wolf or any predator is going to take an animal any way you can get it. If he comes across an elk caught in a fence, he's not going to say, well, it's not fair to hunt animals caught in fences. So I'll just ignore this one. He's going to eat him. Same thing with one
0: more variable involved other than, the si- there's the two variables you put forth are the size of the population of animals and hunter efficacy, but there's a third, there's the harassment. Component. The harassment component? So so if you have people with low technology with with primitive technology, but you have a hell of a lot more of them because their chances of success, success are lower, you might mm-hmm. end up just running everything out of there into yeah. onto the private land or whatever. I you know.
2: And then what about Hikers, think, mountain bikers, skiers, well, yeah, yes,
1: yeah, Humanity, I, yeah, Humanity, I think, with, yeah. with the primitive stuff, it it makes people get more involved because if you're going to hunt a primitive season, like in Pennsylvania, we have a flintlock season, and we're one of the few states I think that has a true flintlock season. You gotta you gotta know what you're doing if you're hunting traditional archery. Take care of longbow. You you got to put in the time because you're not the just going to pick that up. A
0: flintlock, and I'm sure Ron could go on and on. And a muzzle loader. <laughs> I've shot a flintlock once. I don't know how anybody could shoot one of them straight. You pull the trigger, and then you could go eat a sandwich between <laughs> end and when the freaking thing actually goes off. Just a little faster than a matchlock. <laughs>
2: What's I'll
1: hunt yeah. the inlines, but not lock. I, I, I don't ma- partake.
2: The mashlock was essentially a wick, you lit a little wick, and it had oh, oh, a Oh, Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. But I think
1: there's something to that.
2: Oh, um, yeah. I, I think you're absolutely right. But, see, that's another way we could approach this is we could say, look, this is hunting. We're going to define what hunting is. It's not get a tag and go kill one animal with any means you want. We've already established that we're not going to allow that. You can't poison a waterhole. You can't hunt out of a boat or boat while it's underway. You can't hunt out of the air, et cetera, et cetera. So why not say you can't hunt with a rifle that can throw a bullet a thousand yards accurately or something? I'm not, it's not saying that I'm running down anybody who does that kind of a thing. I, personally, I don't want to be doing it. But we could say, look, we are so effective at killing these animals. The population is so low. There are so many hunters who want this chance. We are going to limit you to... Open sites and you know, make it make it the muzzle loader or make it a 30 out six. My gosh, that's more than 110, 20 years old. That's pretty so old. Pretty basic, you know. You can cut it off wherever you think you need to justify it, but basically what you're doing is saying, this is the rules of the game. It's like football. The field is going to be 100 yards long. You're going to have goalposts at either end. You're going to be 50 yards wide every five yards, every 10 yards, you got to get to first down. You got the rules. You can't change the rules because you invented a better football that's going to go farther. You can't even deflate the football to make it get easier to catch. Whatever's going on. Those are the rules. That's the game. Are we going to do that with honey? Where are we going to say, this is how we play the game of elk honey? This is how we play the game of pheasant honey. These are the rules. These are the tools.
1: Th- that they is be- a great point, man. That is absolutely what we need to do. And honestly,
0: we've done it, we have archery season, we have muzzle loader seasons, et cetera, et cetera. But it, in, I think the time for a reevaluation of what the rules should be.
1: Because people celebrate the thousand yard shots. They're like, oh, that's so cool. You know, Joe
0: Rogan kills bull at 75 yards.
2: <laughs> Obviously, 90, with a bull, 90, with a he's got one at 90. Hey, I, I knew a guy back in 1978 who was taking 75 yard shots with his bow way back then. The thing about long ranges there's always been too long, regardless what tools we were using. There was always someone who was going to stretch it. I can remember a kid who shot a deer with his 30 6 4x scope on it in the mid 70s and we all thought he was nuts to even try the shot and he just got lucky he just held way over it somewhere and launched one and it fell over so that sort of irresponsible shooting has been going on forever you know what one man's a huge, long range. there's
0: a huge added element when you publicize it well, when, when you s- publicize it, oh, there's a there's an article in Bowhunter Magazine that a guy just sent me, and I asked guy to come. It, I, I asked got to, the author, to come on the podcast, but it was like something the should 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 bow hunters be taking ultra long shots?
1: That was Kurt Wells. Title
0: there, and you read the article. Kurt Wells, thank you, Jim. Thank you. I get so sick of not knowing people's names. What was my name again? <laughs> Ron Bomer, <laughs> and, and I got well, I got the pronunciation right, so the good it me, is right. I, it's We're doing this on Zoom, and it's right there. On the, but <laughs> but uh, the, there's a huge difference between doing it. And then bragging about it to millions of freaking people. Oh, yeah. This, this article, what's his name again? Well well Kurt, Kurt Wells. Wells. Kurt Wells. It it the title doesn't tell you what it's about. What's it about is how he has all these anecdotes about hunting influencers and hunting personalities inspiring these young kids to take these. Super long shots, and his guy has been a field where he's ended up tracking on multiple occasions these young kids' wounded critter that they took a freaking poke at at 90 yards with their bow. Yeah, and I bet that happens all the time. If you're a young kid and you're going to an archery club and you're getting the right kind of instruction, you might be limited 30. Forty yards mm-hmm. hopefully but if you're if if what you're what what's being modeled to you is not that but instead is cam haynes and joe rogan then you're holding the freaking arrow at a 45 angle 45 degree angle from parallel and letting her rip yeah and saying a couple hail mary's on the way
2: Oh, you're absolutely right about the influence part. You know, the guys who are doing that are influencing the kids. And you know kids. They always want to be the superstar. They want to do what the the champion did. And if some guy is consistently advertising that he's killing elk at 100 yards with a bow or 1,000 yards with a rifle or some kind, then the kids are going, oh, that's cool. I want to do that, too. And it sells the product. And then we get back to the football game, guys. you got to identify the field of ba- battle here and draw you know, your lines. And, and, and as I said earlier, that's what we did with the waterfowling and the shotgun restrictions and uh, no shooting out of vehicles restrictions and all the rest of the things that the different states have done. It can be done. We just have to, as a community, decide for the betterment of what we do and the wildlife we love. We have to probably consider making these changes because getting back to what you were saying earlier, Matt, about in 100 years, we're going to be able to drop a deer at 1,000 yards as if we were hitting it over the head with a hammer right here, right now. But you're talking about, what, guided missiles? We've got the technology already. You know, we can build a projectile that will not just go downrange and get the deer, but heat-seeking missiles can find that deer. Do we want to really be shooting? Is where we want missiles? to go? Yeah. Yeah. Do we want to go there? And that's the question too few of us ask is, yeah, this is great. I love getting behind a rifle that'll hit a gong. Out of the thousand yards, you know, it's a wonderful, challenging target shooting experience. But converting that into hunting and calling it hunting, I don't think flies. It doesn't for me anyway. Yeah. That's yeah. not to say I, I haven't taken some longish shots, but I don't intentionally go out like some guys do to say I got one at a further distance than you did. You don't back
0: uh, up. You're not like, yeah. oh, <laughs> yeah, that's shit, too oh close,
1: <laughs> Ron, I've heard you say you you want your shots within 500 yards and i would imagine or less i would imagine a guy like you could shoot way more than that
2: you know if i worked at it like a lot of guys do i i could i the longest shot i ever took was just a couple of years ago i was testing out a new cartridge a long-range cartridge and everything else and all and they didn't exactly say we want you to hold off until you can make a ridiculously long shot but it was pretty obvious that they wanted to be selling us as this new long-range cartridge blah 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 and we did a lot of target shooting with it and the whole system worked out beautifully every time i set the scope for a certain distance that the laser rangefinder said i had i'd hit my target wonderfully accurate setup and the conditions just happened to be perfect absolutely no wind Calm animal, had no idea, was out there, 777 yards away. We had two people with rangefinders to confirm the distance. And and so I thought, well, if I want to be an expert talking about this stuff, I really, uh, I ought to have some experience. I'm going to try this because it should work. Right where I was holding was where, right where the bullet went, right through the shoulders, got this buck at that ridiculous distance. I uh, know I've been criticized for having done that, probably justifiably so. But I felt at the time that, A, I could pull it off without wounding this deer. By the way, the nearest cover was a half mile away. It was just open prairie. Really didn't have, I had a lot of extra chances at him. But still, 777 yards. It wasn't like I was going to finish him off on the run <laughs> if he took off.
0: Right, right. Yeah, You know, so
2: there's, there's plenty wrong with it. But I thought I needed to have that experience. So when I talk to the long-range shooter guys, I can say, yeah, yeah, I've done that. But I don't do it anymore. Because... By the time that bullet got there, it was a second. I forgot the exact time, but it was a little more than a second. That deer very easily at the pull of my trigger could have taken one step forward, and it would have been a gut shot or a ham shot or something. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there's that. But, yeah, generally, I get within 300 yards of my stuff as close as I can within reason. You know sometimes you're on a hunt, and you've only got a day left or something, and there's a nice clean shot at three hundred and you know your gun and your bullet and everything else, and you know you make that shot and a few times I've gone out to four fifty I think one time I shot five hundred or something, um and then that one seven 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 but that was it but then the other point that I like to make to folks is that I've taken a lot of game guys over my life, and I can't ever remember hunting and saying dang, if I only had a rifle that could shoot a 1,000 yards, I wouldn't keep going home skunked because with good hunting technique and the simplistic tools we use, the standard .30-06, 270 with a 4-to-12x scope on it, you can do anything you need to do within reason. So why get that extra technology layered on top of it? When you start to spend more of your time doing math and playing with computers, then you are enjoying the natural hunter experience.
0: Yeah, yeah. Focusing on the wind direction and your stalking and your alertness. Yep. Challenge,
2: challenging yourself. Your, yep. Yeah. So,
1: do being you alert, think being aware? Do you think that collectively the conservation organizations, the Ducks Unlimited the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, the hunting influencers that care about conservation, do you think collectively they could come together and write that rule book for, for hunting that's going to preserve hunting a 100 years from now?
2: Do you think that could happen? It could happen, but I don't think it will. Because primarily those organizations are interested in the habitat, conservation, restoration, and all the rest. And I don't think they want to jeopardize their potential base, monetary base, by ticking off some people who might have a different philosophy about how I hunt. Yeah, That's so in insightful,
0: Mountain. and it took me forever to realize why the hunting celebrities, the nonprofits won't take a tough stance on anything with the hunting nonprofits is because they're going to lose dues paying members with the with the hunting celebrities are going to lose sponsors and sickest freaking clothes sales etc and Mm -hmm. that is the problem that is that is the reason why nobody in the hunting sphere that makes money off hunting will take a tough stance on freaking anything Mm -hmm. is because they're, they can't, no matter what they believe, how strongly <clears throat> believe they believe it, can't do it. That's yeah. what's unique about, and I would rather people, Ron, what's the name of your podcast?
2: Ron Spomer Outdoors Podcast. Yeah,
0: listen to that podcast, and then if you got time left over, listen to The Hunt Quietly one after that, because, Ron, you have so many good ideas, and you're so worth listening to. I've. I'm enjoying the shit out of this conversation, but that's the problem. That's the rub is that what's right for, what's right for the hunting community. If it, 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 if that conflicts with the the monetary bottom line, the hunting celebrities are handcuffed. Yeah. They're going to go with, they're going to go with the product sales every time.
2: Yeah, I don't know if that I could make a blanket statement like that, but you're definitely on the right track with that. Well,
0: look at in my state where I live, Montana, where we have a public, here's the best example I can come up with. We have a program that has piles of money in it going unspent called the Block Management Program, funded by out-of-state license fees. This program pays an inconvenience fee to ranchers. To let the common man on. Mm -hmm. Now, then we have outfits like the land trust, where they're basically in direct competition with block management, but it's a pay to play thing. We have outfitters, they're leasing up piles of land. We have people coming in, buying amenity ranches, locking everybody else out. So much of that is. Contrary to what the hunting celebrities purport to be all about. The Newbergs, my brother. I should I don't, I'm not supposed to be talking about my brother. We have an agreement, etc., etc. 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 They're not gonna come out against the land trust, even though they're probably buck against land trust or anybody else or anything, because. They're going to lose everybody that buys that brand of clothing that sponsors them. They're going to, they can't, That that's what what's unique about, in my mind, what Jim and I are doing, and, and maybe to some degree you, I don't know where you are with sponsors, but we get to say whatever the hell we want, because I'm losing money on this. Mm-hmm.
1: You don't bite the hand that feeds you.
2: Yeah. I, know, I don't have a hand feeding me. Right. You're feeding it, yeah. No, that's a tough one. And it's just part and parcel of the American experience. The way things work in this country is that the advertising, advertising, advertising. I mean, you can't even look at a 15-second Instagram something or other without an ad popping up. So I think we all understand there's got to be some advertising, but there's got to be, I don't know, if you would call it vetting
0: This just isn't just hypothetical. I I called Randy recently and tried to get to him to come out against Land Trust in a phone call with just him and I, and he wouldn't, even though he's his whole thing is publicly accessible hunting. And the reason I, it's gotta be something along the lines of he's sponsored by Sitka, he's sponsored by Go Hunt, and all the people that hunt land trust land that. A lot of those people wear a sickka. Mm. And a lot of those people use Gohan.
1: My, that's it, my it, conjecture. Why it's else? com what's the it's, risks? It's complex for sure. I, I you know, obviously we're not constrained by any of that, but again you you'd be naive to think that people's opinions and the way they come off aren't uh, aren't guided by the people that are funding them i mean it's just human nature
0: yeah, yeah, yeah and, and, and we're talking about a situation where what's right for the publicly the hunter of publicly accessible land is in direct contradiction a lot of times with what is going on And nobody can say boo because they're going to lose money if they do. Yeah. That's if if I'm not right about that, then I really have no reason for having a podcast, but that's my concern. That's like, that's the,
2: well, it's an inner
0: sanctum of what I'm concerned about is right there.
2: It's unfortunate that money finances and stuff influences opinion. I, ho- I like to think it doesn't influence truth, but then you can have truth and not speak it, and it doesn't matter. You repeat a lie often enough, and it becomes the truth. But it is reality. I think we what we have to do is figure out some way to deal with it effectively, knowing that it's there, and it's probably never going to change. Now, I, I don't think Randy Newberg is, wants to throw over good wildlife conservation and hunter access for a few dollars he gets from a sponsor. But if he's getting a, a good wad of cash from that sponsor, neither does he want to step directly on their toes. I would no, that's
0: that. I think that Randy is playing a balancing act where he's trying to do the right thing, but he's, he is very tightly constrained because there's money involved. Whereas Jim and I, have zero constraints, and we can just talk about what's the best move, what's best for the hunters of publicly accessible land.
2: Yeah, I I understand that, but I think something that we need to consider is who's more effective.
0: No, that's right. right.
2: Yeah. So is Randy by doing what he's doing walking that tightrope is he going to be able to sway enough people over to what we would consider the right side maybe not but you know one side or the other or in my case if if i do it the way i'm doing with emphasis on the cartridges and the bullets and all the fun stuff and then a little bit of conservation and am i going to bring enough people over to make it matter or would well, I? Be, yeah oh.
0: here's another here's a whole other wrinkle to that is that we're talking about two vastly different things right now? I'm talking about access,
2: mm, mm-hmm.
0: not habitat.
2: Yeah, yeah. Access is as uh, another problem for sure. Other huge than- problem.
0: that yeah. like you know you but, hear Cabela's, Bass Pro Shop, yeah. freaking uh, uh, Jackie Bushman, what's his uh, Realtree, etc., etc., etc. Everybody is about this nebulous concept of conservation. Once you flesh it out, they're not—they're not gonna—they're not gonna, gonna get uncomfortable. If you start saying we need more national monuments, they're not gonna go. They're not gonna—they're not gonna buy into that because mm-hmm. that—that—that—that'll alienate some of their customers. But as long as you leave it ill-defined and vague, they're like, yeah, conservation, conservation. You don't hear them saying much about access. And a lot of these guys like, real tree. Etc. 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 They're 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 not about access. They pri- they're about prior Look at all the stuff, all the properties that RealTree owns. Then mm-hmm. they lock up for themselves. Well, they're not yeah. about access. Well, well, they're I not remember. about access at all. They're anti-access. They take our money that we use their to buy their camel and reinvest it, invest it in buying up access for themselves. And this is the kind of stuff that nobody can say a thing about. Unless, unless, except for people that don't make a dime off of it, and there's none yeah. of them around. There's no one around. There's no, I'm not aware of any except for me and now Jim. I mean, the, the, that's the thing, and we're and, and that's why I think it's going to die. We we can't attract more than three or four hundred freaking listeners a week. But we're. I feel like we're saying what can't be said by anybody else because everybody else's bottom line is on the. But this, you know, I Jim and I have demanding jobs, but we care enough about the sport that we're trying to say some shit here. You
2: know? Yeah, the, the trick is what's going to be effective, you know, if, no, no, if calling, no, I get it, I get it. Calling out real tree, you know, are is that gonna have a better effect than maybe trying to, to work with them and explain things to them and get an understanding of what they do and why they do it and asking them. Do you really think it's fair that you bought a a 10,000 acre ranch or leased a 10,000 acre ranch and only you and your friends get to hunt on it when all of these other hunters who are buying your camouflage clothing are looking for a place to hunt? Might not it be in your better interest to open a little more land or work with us on some sort of programs that do open land so that you can continue to have customers? I'm just postulating that possibility. But I think there's maybe it there's takes
0: stuff. somebody like me that's just pissed off to point it out and somebody that's more conciliatory mm-hmm. to pick up the pieces.
2: Yeah, that's usually the way it goes. You know, it, it takes that a Bible thumper to stir it up and then somebody else to say, well, look, let, let's strike a compromise here because everybody's ticked off at you. <laughs> Not going to work <laughs> with you. But you do make some good points, and, and that's what we need to air and get some discussions. Now, I was going to mention Boone and Crockett a while ago. You were talking about the uh, Ducks Unlimited, Rocky Mountain, Elk, some of these organizations not working in these directions, and especially on the ethics end of it. Boone and Crockett Club is the one that has said, hey, we need to set some ethical boundaries here. Fair chase, they call it. And they get called out a lot by guys saying, oh, it's a bunch of hooey. But they've at least had the courage to say, we've got to put some limits on our behavior out here. If we want to brag about being true hunter conservationists who care about it, blah, blah, blah. So there, if you check out their fair chase regulations and whatnot all. I've seen it. I've seen
1: their list. Yep. Yeah,
2: their list steps on a lot of toes of a lot of selling
1: gear. Great point. one One of my things with them is that,
0: why is it that you get to hire an outfitter? that leased up a bunch of land, figured out where all the wildlife is, brings you in, peeks up over the ridge and sees the big one, then has you come up and execute the shot, which is 3% of a successful hunt, and then you're the dude. I don't that? know that? I don't know well, that. My Boone. thing with them is, my, Boone and Crockett, Pope and Young, you know what my thing is with them? They're supposed to be about what with these big horns and stuff is, the health of the animal. What an exemplary... Um specimen don't associate the hunter's name
2: leave the yep. hunter's name off i think my assessment on that is that it's a compromise that they have taken they understand that very thing but they also understand that if they don't help the guy with the who needs his ego stroked a little bit they're not going to keep their membership up this is just human nature once again you, know, yeah. you have to make it it's a business. Okay. yeah all right Yep. I'm always
0: trying to make the perfect perfect enemy of the good. Yeah, because I'm just, just like kind of an idealist. Yeah, and I've got a lot of passion because my hunting started out so pure, so pure. Just a dude, a kid walking around out in the woods, trying to checking out some ponds, trying to stab a bullfrog and then bring it home and deep fry yeah. in a pan. You know, the way we did it. And that's what it should be to me. It's not all this big money bullshit, man.
2: Yeah. You know, but what you're talking about, this this atavistic hunting, why we hunt, this urge that's within us. As I said earlier, natural hunters. We're part of nature and we are made as an omnivore and a hunter. We've got eyes in the front of our face so we can stereo vision and all the rest of the features that we have that pretty much suggest that we are designed as a predator. Um, that comes with a penalty, too, because you look at primitive, so-called primitive cultures in, in parts of the world where they, they don't have hunting programs and regulations and game wardens and biologists and all the rest of it. They don't have any wildlife because they're all pushed out of existence. We go into countries to help the poor, starving people, and we give them certain drugs and benefits to survive the diseases and trials and tribulations that held their populations at low enough levels that they could coexist with the natural world successfully. We overpower that by giving them certain technologies that we have. Meanwhile, they're still out there trying to find enough protein to eat, and they're using snares and traps and pitfalls and all these primitive tools that are pretty effective at killing wildlife. And they can't afford to say, well, we're just not going to hunt for about six months. The population can build up again. In the meantime, my family's going to starve, so I have to poach. So that's kind of the other side of that. Yeah, you can go for it. I'm the pure hunter, and I'm out there for meat to feed myself and my family. But if you're going to then overdo it and destroy the animals that you're needing to feed your family till you don't have any more, then what? Yeah. Kind of back where we were 200 years ago. Right. Yeah. Thus all the compromises. But I think it is legitimate to go where you're going. How can we assure more access for the common man to hunt? Because we do need significant numbers of hunters, real hunters, conservation hunters, but caring hunters, environmentalist hunters. I don't know what the name of it is. But uh, the kind of hunters that the average person who doesn't hunt will not think is some evil killer that only wants to shoot an animal, cut his head off and hang it on the wall. Right.
1: People I reason the
2: premise. I
0: reason from the premise that paying for access. I pay okay, 25. I pay 25 bucks a year to go behind my friends. Um she lives in a homeowners so or she has a cabin in a homeowners association. And I got paid 25 bucks. She gets four permits a year, and and they cost 25 bucks. To is so I'm hunting public land, but she's allow allow people in, and that money goes to paying for the road maintenance. So I, I don't want to be like I'm ultra peer. So I'm but paying for a lease, a lease that locks everybody else out. I, I'm operating from the premise that that's just not. That's that's not hunting. At some point, it's kind of like the long-range distance shooting. At some point, it becomes equivalent to paying a rancher for a steer and going out and shooting the steer. And I, I, so what I'm concerned about is publicly accessible hunting, and that's what that's my that's my abiding concern
2: is. Is that kind of honey? Yeah, and that's a tough one just because of our population and the way this country was set up. You know, we had a great idea in that wildlife was held in common for everyone. But then you end up with the tragedy of the commons. I don't know if you read that back in the uh, 60s or 70s. I
1: talk about that all the time. Tragedy yeah. of the commons. Yeah.
2: yeah. Garrett Hardin, I think, wrote that, some ethnologist, biologist, professor guy. The idea is if you have a commons, which they used to have in England and different places where everybody got to put their milk cow out on the commons, and they would graze, and then you go out and get your cow and you milk it, and everybody has a cow. No problem. You didn't have to own the land. It was held in common, kind of like a national park now. But you've got to manage it. Well, what people would do is say, you know, it's the commons. Everybody has a cow out there. I don't know how many cows are out there, and I don't know if that's Ralph's cow and that's Terry's cow, and I don't think they know if this one is mine or that one is mine, so maybe I can slip another one in there. Nobody will know. They'll think it's somebody else's, you yep. and pretty soon everybody's putting it. and instead of having enough cows on there to continually graze it, they overgraze it because everybody sneaked another cow in. That's the tragedy of the commons. If everybody owns it, nobody's responsible for it, and they overuse it. That's one of the problems we have in this country. Yes, the wildlife belongs to everybody, but the land doesn't. The land can be controlled by the individual. So he can turn a beautiful prairie full of wildlife into a wheat field or a corn field or a soybean field or whatever he wants. He can blaze the whole thing and turn it into a parking lot for a stadium and nobody will care because they all want to go watch the football game or the car race or something. So why should we then say, well, this guy... Maintain good wildlife habitat on his property, but he won't let me hunt it for free. Well, if you're not going to let him charge people to go on there and hunt so that he can pay his taxes and make a living, then he's going to turn it into a racetrack, and you're going to lose everything. I just don't. I don't think of
0: if you. I don't if you have to pay. If I have to pay to hunt, I don't think of it as hunting. Yep. Hunting is about getting something by my wits feeding myself by my wits and once I get my paycheck my pay my billfold involved it just becomes com- so freaking completely arbitrary it's, I under you I understand know, I, could, it, I, could, but- I could I could shoot anybody could shoot anything if if they're willing to pull up their billfold there's no sense of accomplishment okay anymore. let's say
2: let's say you want to go to the wilderness of the Brooks range in Alaska at a hundred dollar sheep Get out well, your pocket.
0: One, well, one second. I want to turn my light on so you guys can see me. I look like a. <laughs> you look sheep. better this one way. Second. You're really looking <laughs> good right <laughs> now. No doubt about that. One <laughs> second. We. Okay, I'm in Alaska in the Brooks Range hunting doll sheep. I've a yep. doll sheep. I've killed a doll sheep. But my get, out your, mother, get, get out your get out your pocketbook, dude. Lives in Alaska, so I guess it's going to cost it.
2: you at least a thousand dollars to fly up there. That's your pocketbook. That's not hunting. You paid for it. What's the difference if you give your money over to flying somewhere to get there or buying a rifle to do it or paying for the tag to do it? I haven't sc- excluded somebody money.
0: else. I Pardon? haven't excluded other people. Oh, well, that again is up to the individual landowner. It's his not, right. Not in a lot of the West. everybody. In a lot of the West, not in, in a lot of the farm country in this. A lot of farm country in this nation, having no hunting isn't an option. Because you'll get eaten out of house and home.
2: Oh yeah, but once again, that's so the
0: it's not like either you lease or there'll be no hunting. Somebody has I know, I know ranchers around here in Eastern Montana that have fired their outfitter and gone back to black block management because the outfitter wasn't getting enough does killed. Hmm.
2: Yeah, I've heard of stuff like that. So I just
0: don't buy that. That's the only way. Personally, I just don't think of it as, it's not what, it's not. I have zero interest in it, and I don't think anybody else should either. Certainly, if you're going to do it, don't put it on Instagram like it's a big accomplishment. If you forked out a shitload of money to exclude everybody else so that you could have your exclusive experience and then trot it out on social media like you're some kind of hunting hero like Rogan and Haynes, and like that <laughs> when uh, nobody else even had a chance to shoot that, except you am um, at least be quiet about it. It's I just, I yeah. don't think it's, I don't, I think it's, it, it's not, it's not hunting to me by my definition. Well, neither is hunting with a camera. If there's a camera involved, if yeah, there's a I GoPro right. involved, Video it's program. not hunting. I have this thing I call a hunt purity index. Yeah. And, You know, there's, it's not like it's either not hunting or hunting. There's, there's, it's a continuum, but hunting with a camera or leasing up land and locking everybody else out or high wire. There's just lots of stuff that I just am not even, I'm not willing to call it the thing that I do. It's something different than that.
2: Yeah, that I don't have a problem with that because you are making personal choices here and you're defining things for you this is honey this is how you define it as i said earlier and I'm encouraging to it people it. to to elder people to define it as i do it's not just right. descriptive it's normative right but i don't want to get that confused with private property rights which is getting no, back no i
0: don't i'm not trying yeah, to pass any yeah. laws
2: so and i, I, I I honestly, I will take a stand here that I think a farmer or rancher with property can say no hunting. It's his property; he can say there's no hunting. Yeah, I agree ranch. too. Or but I can... think that I think other than that, other
0: than this, Ron, thirty three over over a third, about a third of farmer ranch income in this country is from you, me, and Jim. Uh huh. Yeah, good point. Subsidies. So I'm open to the notion that if you're going to take that much public money. That there's there's some obligation to provide some access that doesn't seem outside that doesn't seem entirely unreasonable to me i'm nope, not in, I, 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 i'm not engaged in the legislature in any way shape or form primarily for pragmatic reasons because i don't think it's going to get us anywhere yeah i oh. think it's a waste of freaking oh. time <laughs> to engage in in that bs yeah but um so i'm not trying to pass any laws I'm making an appeal to the hunting community I'm trying to make an appeal to the hunting community to have some respect for your fellow hunters
1: I I I I agree I think it's conversations like we're doing right now I mean this has been this has been awesome you know and I think it's bringing people to the table to to discuss these these issues that you know maybe aren't popular for for the powers that be to, to talk about. But hopefully people come to the table because they freaking care about hunting and what it's going to be like in 21, 22 when, yeah. you know, when we're all gone.
2: And I hope that listeners don't get all jacked up and pissed off at any of us for what we said that's another one of the big problems we have especially with social media is everybody immediately picks a side and hates the other side. Yeah. Consider consider what someone says, think about it and and discuss it without having to call anybody names or deciding they're completely out to lunch. You know, several of the things that you've said I think are not quite right. I don't think. But then <laughs> I've probably said several things that you think, "Ah, eh, Spoma, you're missing the boat on this one." That's fine. We continue to discuss and go, yeah, you've got a point there. What can we do about it? How are we going to strike this compromise? Because that's what it's going to come down to. Yep. Everyone is going to, or pretty much the majority, is going to have to agree that we have got to do something. And after thrashing this out and getting kicked off and punching each other in the nose, we've come to realize that we're going to have to compromise in this way. and then get Yeah, because
1: we, we all want to get to the end game together. I mean, everybody yeah. wants good hunting. I mean, that's... Mm-hmm. Whether you care about habitat, whether you care about access, everybody still wants good hunting. We just have to navigate through the bullshit and come to the to the to the end zone together.
2: Yep. And if you could send a few dollars to my account to help me lease this nice ranch over here that's got <laughs> a lot of <laughs> meal there it.
1: As long as you let me hunt, <laughs> I, <laughs> yeah, see, I, as I, long as you let me hunt. as long as you get a I, hunt. I hear yeah. what
0: both of you are saying, and 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 I think that I run a high risk of a, an alien, a, alienating a lot of people. And if you get on the hunt forums, you'll see that I already have. I don't think that I'm the right person to be even temperamentally to be even doing this. I don't think that I'm. I don't think that I'm. I'm 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 too mentally fragile, I'm too highly opinionated. I just I started a podcast to say a few things that no one else is saying. Hunting promotion, I believe is bad for hunting. It increases the monetary value of hunting and it prices people out things like that. Mm-hmm. Um uh when you lease people, lease land it, 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 it there's consequences of that for other hunters. Um, uh, I am, I, I have a tremendous amount of cognitive dissidence when I consider how many people I see at a trailhead and that our nonprofits are spending a quarter to a third of their proceeds on trying to get more. So, but I'm not diplomatic enough and I don't, I don't relish the attention. I don't relish Jim is gonna be taking over half of these episodes and I'm gonna be working a little bit on social media stuff, but I would I'd I'd like somebody like you're saying, Ron, you're a much more diplomatic fellow than me. If somebody else could come along that shared my concerns but could do it more diplomatically, I'd step out of this thing.
2: Mm-hmm well you're valuable in the fact that you aren't afraid to make a strong opinion to get the conversation going and i have nothing
0: there's nothing to fear because i have nothing on the line right i'm a research ecologist for the u.s department of agriculture none of this
2: has any bearing on what i do for a living right so it's easy but the risk that you run of course is that you tick people off and then they won't pay any attention anymore which is the wrong approach, because what, what what's so much you do is say. What's the point then? Yeah, what's that, that Matt is so opinionated. He's so full of crap. Well, tell me why. What did he say that's wrong? And if you can then well, articulate. Well, if that's true, said, then why does Trump get 40% of
0: the people behind him? Like He's a very bombastic guy, whether you like him or not. It's, he's mm-hmm. not like a milquetoast guy. That's All right.
2: But so, he also, you know, there's just people who love him and there are people who hate him. You take a strong position like that without any bend, and people, it's just the way our culture has been, especially the last 20 years or so. We've just got so divisive. It's got to be black or white. You're either on this side or that side. There's no middle ground.
0: We've got to get right.
2: away from that. We've got to get right. back to civil discussions because that's the only way you come up with solutions. Everything's a compromise except for gravity.
1: <laughs> <laughs> right i'm looking at the clock here we've been going over two hours the best, no, the best to the this. Thing that's most
0: the, the the seems the most is like a solution to me in this episode is your idea that you get preference points
1: oh there's yeah there's some huge points
2: in in access and conservation yeah work there you go. there you go see two hours of talking and we came up with something that might be good
1: oh there's yeah there's two and and bringing people to the table the set of rules that was yeah that's that's huge
2: yeah we gotta you gotta set the the rules of the game and uh and then bring bring people to the table in the right way in other words mentoring Look, this is what a hunter really is. It's not a guy who's got the highest technology and you can make the longest shot and all that. Do that with, with steel targets. That's fun. That's a great way to show off how what a great long-range shot you are, whether it's a gun or a bow or, or fisticuffs, whatever you want to do to prove your prowess. But when it comes to hunting, taking an animal's life, let's get serious. This is serious business, and you've got a hell of a responsibility as a hunter. Yes, you have the right to be a hunter. Nature made you one. But we live in a society. We live in a culture. There's too many of us for everyone to just go out and shoot anything he wants to, anytime he wants to, or it's suddenly all gone. So you've got to take some responsibility as well. And part of that responsibility is understanding more and more about what's going on out there and what makes this all possible. And that that's what we have to be as a hunting community. I would love it if the general public thought, oh, hunters. Sure, I know what hunters are They're like Daniel Boone. They can go out in the woods naked and come back fully clothed. 10 pounds heavier because they know nature and they know how to work within nature to get what they need. And here I am living in the city, depending on this long chain of trucks and ships and petroleum products and stuff just to keep my ass alive. (laughs) Who's the better person here? The man who can live off the land, the woman who can live off the land or somebody in the city dependent on somebody else to do it for them and petrochemicals. Oh man, I like what you're saying,
0: except that all those city slickers coming into my hunting spot. I don't want that.
1: Oh, uh, well.
2: Should, should we end there, Matt? it there, man? I think we stepped in it enough, guys. <laughs> uh, <laughs> That's a great guys. way of putting it.
0: Ron Spomer, Spomer, Spomer. Spomer. Ron. Rhymes with Homer Spomer. and Gomer.
1: Boomer. Boomer.
0: Damn it. Ron Spomer. <laughs> listen to his podcast and then if you got any time le- left over you can li- li- listen to jim or maybe me but uh ron i think i can't believe you haven't saved hunting already it makes me pretty pessimistic that it can be saved but, <laughs> yeah uh, i was going to uh, save the world voice, back in the 70s bro, it didn't work. wonderful <laughs> wonderful voice for our shared pastime wow i'm
2: so glad that. you're out there and I will. Day I day day. will try to. I will try to do the best I can here because I'm not going to last much longer. But I've got some grandkids who I'd like to see enjoy the things that I yep. have. And I'm. Um, and I'm. Um, and I got
0: my fingers crossed for them as well. I hope they can enjoy hunting and fishing. I don't even know if you're a fisherman. I hope they can enjoy the outdoors in the same way that you did somehow.
2: All right. Thanks. Thanks for your your efforts. Here. Yeah.
1: Th- Thanks so much, Ron. It was a pleasure talking to you. And I always considered you one of the good guys and authentic. So I I this was this was great to be part of this. Yeah, right.
0: Jim, you get some serious credit for for getting this guy on. So all right. Enough enough uh, blowing sunshines up, sunshine <laughs> up each other's asses. Good night, you
2: guys. All right. Good night. Good night. See ya.